Welcome to the O'Reilly Data Show. I'm your host, Ben Lorica. Before we jump into today's episode, I want to remind our listeners that we do have two event series that they can go and attend and learn more about the topics covered in this podcast. The first one is called the Strata Data Conference, which you can find at strataconf.com. The second one is the Artificial Intelligence Conference, which you can find at the AIConf.com. In this episode of The Data Show, I sat down with Avner Braverman. He is co-founder and CEO of Binaris, a startup that aims to bring serverless to web scale and enterprise applications. This conversation took place shortly after the release of a seminal paper from UC Berkeley entitled A Berkeley View on Serverless Computing. And this paper seeded a lot of our conversation during this episode. Serverless is clearly on the radar of data engineers and architects. In fact, in a recent survey, we found that 38% of the respondents were already using one of the serverless offerings we listed. So Abner is also going to be part of a strong lineup at Strata Data London. We have many sessions on AI and data technologies in the cloud. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Avner Braverman, the founder and CEO of Binaris, uh, an interesting new startup based here in Silicon Valley as well as in Israel. Welcome to the data show. Hi, Ben. Thank you for having me here. So first off, uh, so we're going to talk mostly about serverless, but let's uh, talk a little bit briefly about your background. So previously, you were, you were chief architect of Parallel Machines. Is it fair to say that you've always been interested in infrastructure and backend technologies? I've actually always been very interested in, in the two extremes of the compute spectrum. I really like user interface and the user experience, almost the visual part of it. But my professional career was uh, almost uh, completely in the backend uh, operating system kind of space. I first encountered distributed operating systems, as they were called back then, uh, in 95, when I did my uh, a master's degree in the Hebrew University in Jerusalem. And since I was involved as a co-founder in a company called XAV, which built enterprise storage. And as you mentioned, Parallel Machines, which built the high-performance uh, computing, basically took the principles of high-performance computing into the data analysis space, mostly batch analytics. And with serverless, and we're probably going to talk about it later on, is the convergence of the two spaces, which really kind of captivates me. So let's set the stage here. So what was the situation before Amazon released Lambda? So before serverless, what was the landscape for people interested in, uh, in cloud technologies? So the, the baseline of cloud technology was always getting, at least from an Amazon perspective, getting virtualized servers into the hands of users. If you think back to the uh, early 2000s and you worked in a company and you wanted to get a server online, it was a fairly painful process. You had to probably go through some acquisition process. You had to allocate budget. Uh, you had to wait usually a few months for a server to get online and then go through uh, IT tests and have IT install the software for you. And it was a kind of a lengthy process. And Amazon really changed all that. When EC2 debutted around 2004, 2005, I don't remember exactly when that was, the process of acquiring a new server involved going online, clicking a bunch of buttons, and plugging in your credit card. And it was so cheap that you could almost always do it on your own credit card. You didn't have, even have to get a company credit card. So it completely changed 
the cost structure and the um, the time that it took to provision uh, hardware, and that lets developers be way more productive and way more creative with new projects, with new ideas. It lets them prototype things very, very quickly. And as cloud applications evolved and as they became more and more complicated, and specifically as the user base grew, early 2000s, we're still talking uh, web that was before iPhone, before Android. And then as we moved from web applications to, uh, or even before that, client-server applications into web applications and then into mobile applications, the number of users just grew considerably. And applications had to scale better, had to be more um, manage more moving parts. And we created a whole new layer of virtual infrastructure. So we no longer had to manage physical servers, but we had to manage virtual servers. And that uh, gave rise to the whole DevOps movement, which basically the infrastructure is code and lets you manage those virtualized environments with code. Another thing that's worth mentioning is that along the years, and that's before 2015, that's before serverless, we had what's called a platform as a service. Heroku was a, uh, a famous solution and Google App Engine was a famous solution. And those were early attempts to provide a more managed model, a more managed infrastructure. And uh, maybe the, the real one kind of use case where that became really, really big is uh, Snapchat. Snap, originally Snapchat, uh, was one of the first applications to really grow big on Google App Engine. And actually, what I hear is that it, was, it became so big so fast that it actually drove the growth of uh, Google Cloud in many respects. Uh, but aside from that kind of marquee use case, uh, platform as a service never became a real movement and a real way to build applications. Uh, one of the reasons was cost. If you look at Heroku, Heroku was a great way to start. A lot of startups kind of started out on Heroku because it was very easy to get code up and running in the cloud. But because of the price per compute unit was much higher than, than the alternative manage your own server paradigm, then as apps grew, they kind of moved off of Heroku and moved off of platform as a service into a more traditional manage your own virtual infrastructure kind of. Mode. It's interesting because uh, I actually uh, built a simple website on Google App Engine, and uh, uh, I just found it so much easier to get started than uh, Amazon. Oh, definitely. Definitely. Actually, when we started Benares and started thinking about the whole space, Lambda was very, very early days back then, it was early 2016. But the model that we had in mind was Google App Engine with its auto-scaling capabilities, with its ease of deployment and ease of use. And you really could almost completely, and I'm saying almost completely because it, we still have ways to go. And I think with serverless, we kind of seeing today the promise of you can completely focus on your code, completely focus on your application and not worry about the whole infrastructure part. And I think that was the biggest draw for platforms like Heroku and platforms like Google App Engine. And then the major drawback was some of the programming limitations and especially around Google App Engines, which had their own set of APIs they exactly. kind of boxed to exactly. into their solution. Yeah. And then cost was a big issue with, with basically every other. No, it's uh, one of those things where it's uh, very easy to get started until you realize, oh, I, there, I can't really do so certain things. Right. It's yeah. the, uh, almost a closed system versus an open system kind of discussion. Right, right, right. All right, so fast forward to 2016, we had uh, Amazon Lambda uh, come out. So... Uh, for our audience, uh, Avner, who don't follow this space closely, what exactly is serverless? That's a huge question. And um, 
actually, um, there's a lot of debate about the whole term serverless in the community because somewhere there's a server that someone manages for you and it runs your code. But if you need to kind of distill down serverless, it really boils down to two things. Is one, the whole infrastructure is managed for you. So you want to you build an app, not just a physical infrastructure, which is what the cloud kind of outsourced to Amazon or Microsoft or, or Google, but also the virtual infrastructure, the managing of virtual machines and networking and uh, VPC and load balancing, all that gets offloaded or outsourced to the cloud provider. So you can basically focus on your code, your application, and never manage infrastructure. It's a, in, in a sense, it's a democratization of scale. Building an app that doesn't have scale, just spinning up a VM and running an app, that's super easy. But building a scalable, elastic application requires a lot of very complex DevOps, very complex infrastructure work today. And serverless takes all that away. So it makes scale approachable to many, many more developers. So, so that's one aspect. Right, right, right. So in other words, uh, you don't need to worry about explicit provisioning. Exactly. You don't need to worry about if my, if my code needs to run and it needs a piece of CPU and a piece of memory to run on, you don't have to worry about where that CPU is. You don't have to worry about where the memory is. You just need to specify, I want X amount of resources. And it's up to the provider to provision those resources for you and to make sure that the right messages go into your, it's usually a container, right? You go into your container, get your code running, and then get the response back to the caller. It's a much more simplified environment. And then the other side of the story, Abner, as I understand it, is how you pay for it and how you're built. Exactly. And um, actually, um, Berkeley put it very interesting. Berkeley just put out a very deep, very extensive technical report on what is serverless computing and kind of the benefits and challenges. And I would encourage anyone who's interested in the space to treat it. It's a bit long, but it's very, very interesting. And, well, I will definitely link to it in the show notes here. So what they, what they said is, the way they put it, is you pay for resources used instead of resources allocated. In a PaaS environment, for example, in a platform-as-a-service environment, you usually pay for the number of containers that are up and running and kind of ready to serve your application. It used to be static allocation. In the early days of Heroku, you would go in and kind of choose a number of dynos that you wanted to run your code on, each dyno representing a container. Today, they have autoscaling. If you're talking about virtual machines, you're paying for the number of virtual machines that are up and running and serving your code. And spinning up a virtual machine is a pretty lengthy process. It takes about a minute. So uh, and, uh, you, anyone who's used any of these services and forgot to uh, turn them off absolutely, <laughs> will uh, testify to uh, how much they cost, right? <laughs> exactly. And because of the slowness, in allocating resources and deallocating resources, releasing resources, which is something you usually need to, need to do explicitly, your overall utilization numbers are not that high. I mean, if we're they're still way better if you're building what's called a cloud-native application. Cloud-native applications have double-digit utilization numbers. If we're thinking about older applications, legacy applications, which have been sort of lifted and shifted to the cloud, that utilizations can be in the single-digit numbers. With serverless, you're only paying for the time where your code actually runs. So if you have a, if you deploy the function into a serverless platform and that function serves a single request, you don't pay for the process, for the time it takes to allocate a container, to make sure the container is up and running, for the time it takes the system to tear down the container, or the time the system waits 
for your container to be torn down because it might need to reuse the container in the future. You only pay for the actual time that your code is running. So ideally, you're at 100% utilization. There's a lot of details around what your workload is and what are the uh, counting units that the cloud provider uses. But basically, you're only paying for the, the resources you actually consume for the time your code is actually running which means that you're running at a much higher utilization number than any other platform today. So let's make this a little more concrete, Avner, in the sense that based on your conversations and based on what you know, what are people using serverless today? So what are some of the popular, most popular use cases? From what we hear, most of the code that's running on serverless platforms today is used to manage and, and kind of automate cloud environments. So it's basically DevOps code. And the level of, take Lambda, for example, beyond the, the two properties, the managed infrastructure and the, and, the, and the billing model that Lambda has, it also, also has a very, very deep integration into AWS. The amount of triggers inside the AWS environment, they can fire up Lambda functions. And for example, a file gets uploaded to storage, gets uploaded to S3, can trigger a Lambda function. A message runs through SNS or SQS or Kinesis can trigger a Lambda function. Codes get deployed to uh, one of AWS's code management services or uh, one of the machine learning environments. Almost everything inside AWS can trigger a Lambda function. So it's a great way to kind of respond to what's happening in your AWS environment and help you manage that environment better. So that's a lot of the code that's on Lambda is used to manage the AWS environment itself. From what we know, the largest number of cycles running in Lambda, the heavy lifting is data, uh, data ingestion into the cloud, basically ETL workloads that run in a very scalable, very elastic environment. And we can uh, dive into that uh, later on and kind of describe different ways and what people are doing with ETL in the cloud and why serverless is, is a great match. And we're also seeing recently more new projects that kind of use Lambda as a way or use serverless as a way to build APIs and to uh, build codes that's more responsive uh, to users. And that has a lot of challenges with existing platforms like Lambda and Azure Functions actually is where Benares kind of comes into the, uh, to the picture. So actually, so the, that same uh, UC Berkeley paper that you, uh, you mentioned earlier, they have an excerpt from a survey called the Serverless Community Survey. Mm -hmm. And uh, there they say, when people are asked, what are you using serverless for? As you said, right? So one third said, we're using it for web and API serving. One fifth, so 21% said data processing. So ETL kinds of things. So interesting. So it's kind of like a mix of, uh, so you have uh, people who listen to the show who are probably interested in the data processing, but then a completely different community also using it for web and API serving. Absolutely. So why did serverless take off so fast? Hmm. I mean, from the, from the time it was announced, it was like uh, super popular. So it, clearly there was a pent up demand for this sort of uh, service with these kinds of uh, offerings and features, right? I think in many cases, the story of AWS, serverless is a story of AWS Lambda. And uh, Lambda was the first serverless platform to be offered at, I think it was released at the end of uh, 2014, at reInvent 2014. And it really grew exponentially. And one of the reasons is that Amazon never had uh, their own pass environment. They never had a managed way to run code, as opposed to Google had Google App Engine and uh, Microsoft had a myriad of offerings 
Microsoft app servers and others inside uh, Azure function, inside Azure. And Amazon never had anything like that. And I think, I think there was definitely um, a lot of pent up demand for, for a managed runtime environment. And I think the other thing is that there's something really magical about serverless. The ability to write a few lines of code and the serverless function. We haven't talked about functions and the programming model. For yeah, serverless. yeah, yeah, yeah. Actually, uh, the main manifestation right now of serverless is mostly around these functions, right? So functions as a service, or, uh, specifically Lambda, right? So. Right. Serverless can be, any service can be serverless. For example, we've seen if you're tracking AWS, your latest reInvent was a lot about serverless databases. So moving from a pre-allocated capacity, pre-allocated IOPS, and kind of prepaid uh, almost capacity into a model where you're actually paying for the number of IOPS that you do and you're actually paying for the capacities that you use and they scale that uh, much more tightly with your usage now. Obviously, storage is a completely different uh, billing, right? So. Right. Right, but that could be serverless as well. If if you pay for storage per how much you're actually using and not have to pre-provision, for example, shards or pre-provision the number of IOs that you can do per second on a system, and you're actually paying per the amount of work that you're actually doing on servers, on the on, on the storage, that storage becomes serverless. It becomes more serverless in nature. So, so, so let's, uh, let's drill down, Avner, on this functions as a service. So basically, the idea is you, you, you only pay for when you actually call a function, let's say for, I don't know, like image for image recognition or even for uh, data processing. But then so there must be some limitations there, right? So like uh, state and lack of state, I mean. Right. I think, I think functions, if, if we look at it from a kind of a historic perspective, is, is, was almost inevitable. And... We used to run, if you even think back in the 60s, think back on mainframe days, computers were so expensive. We used to run, have one computer per organization and all the applications would be in one computer. And then as we moved to open systems and networking, we started having one server per application. And as we moved into the cloud, we started breaking down those applications into services and then microservices. So as networks, the moment the network becomes fast enough, we disaggregate. And, and we, we disaggregate storage from compute and we disaggregate compute from compute. So we break down our apps into smaller and smaller pieces. And that's been driven mostly by developer productivity and being able to kind of think about and code and deploy and test your code in smaller units, which makes it a more predictable and more uh, efficient way to write code. And, but as, as you said, as we move into smaller, smaller uh, uh, pieces, uh, the programming model gets uh, more constrained. And if you think about uh, a Lambda or a serverless model in general, functions are usually limited in the amount of memory they can consume. I think the largest Lambda now is three gigabytes, so you can't have a larger Lambda. It's limited in the compute time you consume. It used to be five minutes, now it's 15 minutes. Uh, after 15 minutes, your function times out. And in nature, the functions are supposed to be stateless. It doesn't mean that you can't cache things in memory and you can't use things in memory, but ideally your function is designed to do one thing and maintain the persistent state at least in an external system. And if we kind of think back or, or circle back to the Berkeley um, paper, they actually describe what they call persistent storage and ephemeral storage. And it's 
A persistent storage is where you want to be able to store your long-lasting data, data that needs to be there even after the application shuts down or scales back to zero. And ephemeral storage or ephemeral memory is what you're using to compute as you're computing along. And a lot of the state, a lot of the um, sort of the transitory state of the application can be offloaded to this kind of memory. And that means that if any individual component of your application and the individual function or container or service fail, the application can recover and continue computing because its state is not inside the function itself. And I think that's the real meaning of making the function stateless. Right. So in reading that Berkeley paper, right, so uh, they lay down their vision of uh, what serverless needs to add in order for it to be able to support more interesting workloads. In particular, so for the audience in, that's listening to the show, so the, the two things that probably they're interested in are transactions and maybe machine learning, both training and inference. I actually have access to some of the Berkeley research that they did in support of that paper. And so they, they did try to do some model training, right? So just out of the box using Lambda. It's, so what they found is much slower than EC2 and then much more expensive. Same thing for inference. Abner, so one of my questions is at what point, as you keep adding more and more things to serverless, does it become more complex and therefore <laughs> lose, loses its appeal? I think that's a great question. And I, I, let, let's tackle it from a data perspective. Right. Let's talk a little bit about data and we can start with kind of simple ETL use cases and talk about data streaming and then machine learning a little bit and kind of view that in a perspective of serverless and then try to answer your question. So as I mentioned earlier, a lot of the use cases or a lot of the usage in serverless today is around ETL. And there are a number of reasons why ETL is a great match for serverless. One is that usually the operation that you do per piece of data or per uh, mini batch of data is fairly straightforward. You do, you do something, you do some kind of transformation. The transformation doesn't depend. So it's basically a map, right? There's not a lot of shuffling. It's the map phase. ETL is usually the map phase and not the reduce phase. So at least for the map phase, it's fairly easy to, uh, to do that in a serverless function because the function just implements the, the, the mapping, the, the, the transformation of the data. And then as data kind of flows into the cloud, sometimes it's a trickle, sometimes it's a flood, and the ability to uh, scale up and down, the ability of serverless to be very, very elastic is a great way to deal with these kind of bursts. We've actually seen use cases where, um, map-reduce use cases, where the map phase is handled by function, and you can very, very quickly and easily scale up to tens of thousands of functions running in parallel, and then they spew out their output into a storage like S3, and that gets processed in the reduce phase, usually by a machine or by some other type of container which has more memory. Doing that with functions is still more challenging today, and one of the things that we need to solve as serverless providers. I think that's one of the things we're going to see, and we've seen that transition happen with platforms like Spark, and with Google, for example, the transition from MapReduce to uh, platforms like Dataflow is that we're going to see the same patterns kind of move from a batch processing, a background processing, into more of a real-time processing. And that's where we plug in as Binaris. Binaris builds its own serverless platform. It's running on AWS. And our goal is to enable many more use cases and many more applications to run on serverless. Is one of them is, is data analytics and machine learning. So if you think about data streaming in real time, you want to have your functions fire up much faster. 
You want to be able to tie functions together in order to um, manage the state of your compute, manage your pipeline so your data doesn't get lost in the middle. So if a function fires up and gets killed for some reason along the way, and it's a cloud environment, any comp- we assume any component can fail at any time. You want to be able to track the state of your compute and revert back so you don't need to redo everything. And you, you need to optimize for certain uh, communication patterns. Between, right. between nodes. And then also, I guess, Abner, for when you get into machine learning, you need to m- maybe have access to specialized hardware, GPUs, ASIC, which uh, the cur- current serverless services do not give you. Right. So. right. so serverless today doesn't support GPUs. One of the reasons is that um, setting up a GPU and uh, configuring a GPU takes a long time. <laughs> And so it, it, it makes it less elastic by nature. Yeah. Um, and, and then so, also those instances are expensive and in demand, right? So. Right. I think the, um, if you're thinking about large-scale model training, like a large-scale distributed TensorFlow setup, porting that to serverless is going to be somewhat challenging. Um, what, about just, need... uh, what about just inference? So... I think inference is actually a great use case. Because it's like a, you're calling a function at that point, right? Absolutely. You're calling a function. In many cases, you can leverage the built-in AVX instruction set inside the x86 processor, so you can get some kind of SIMD, some kind of parallelization. The, the only challenge is nowadays, well, not in every case, but there are certain models that are big, right? So. Yeah, we actually, we actually had an, a joint project that we did with TensorFlow Expert, and his complaint was that our functions are not big enough, but he only needed like two gigabytes and, and a few cores. So, so we're going to get there uh, very soon in terms of support, maybe even by the time this podcast is released. The upside for running inference on serverless is the availability of resources, the, the ability to very, very quickly scale up and provision more and more CPU cores for doing inference and then scaling down when you don't need it. So if your inference workload is elastic in any way, uh, running it on a, a serverless environment could be faster and a lot cheaper than running it on a GPU, assuming that you need to pre-provision a set of GPUs and you pay on demand for them and it's expensive resources and they need to be up and running all the time, ready for you to be inference. And chances are they're going to be idle a large percentage of the time. Yeah, and depending, Abner, on the mission criticality of the application, there's going to be SLOs, right? So service level objectives that you have to meet. Absolutely. And in many cases, inference is something that you want to do in real time. If you want to be able to run, think about combination of a streaming use case and an inference use case. If you want to run a video pipeline, if you want to get a video streaming in real time, break that down into frames, uh, run one or more machine learning models or TensorFlow models on each of those frames, you want it to be very, very elastic. You also want it to be very, very fast and very responsive. And Lambda, for example, is just too slow for these kind of use cases. But this is one of the things we're going to demonstrate soon on our own platform. And this elasticity lets you manage use cases where you might have different number of video streams coming in and out. You might have different, sometimes the video, for example, if it's a surveillance system, sometimes you might have a lot of things going on and need a lot of compute power. Sometimes nothing is going on and you're looking at a pretty static picture. So you don't need any compute resources. So you get elasticity built into that. And being able to pipeline a series of inference models in real time over a, a video stream is a pattern that we think serverless is very suitable for. You just need to build the platform with the kind of responsiveness and state management that lets you manage this kind of pipeline. 
So here's another reason why listeners of this podcast, the data community, should pay attention and start really kicking the tires in serverless. Besides the things that Evner talked about, which is streaming, ETL, and model inference, there's another element that is just around the corner, which is 5G, right? So with, with 5G, there's going to be a lot more machine-to-machine applications and, and applications that uh, are essentially what Avner just described, streaming in real time. That's absolutely true. Um, 5G is very interesting, both in terms of uh, bandwidth and how much data you can, you can throw back into the cloud, and also in terms of latency. And our first focus, uh, when we started thinking about how can you make serverless the real kind of way to build cloud applications, the standard way to build cloud applications, because of all the benefits and the managed infrastructure and the fact that developers just become so much more productive on serverless and so much happier on serverless, how do we make it accessible to more use cases? How do we make it accessible to more complex applications? And, and a lot of that goes into the state management that I mentioned earlier and the pipelining that I mentioned earlier. A lot of that goes into managing caches and how do you manage state in a stateless environment. But the very first thing that we did was get rid of the whole cold start problem. And we haven't mentioned cold start, but imagine that you're running a, an elastic environment and when you need to run the code, you need to provision resources for that code to run. So it's not the user responsibility to do that, but the cloud provider needs to do that for you. So they need to go out and find an, an empty slot on an empty machine and load your code there and route the messages to that uh, platform. That takes time. Today it takes a lot of time. It can take a few seconds for a function, a new function to be up and running. And that has to go away. Oh, yeah, particularly for real-time uh, inference Absolutely. For, for, I don't know, for some mission-critical application, right? Absolutely. We had to get rid of call starts. We had to get warm latency much lower. And if you tie that back into 5G, 5G makes the cloud accessible with sub-10 millisecond latency from every metropolitan area, basically. And that's a game changer. It means that a lot of uh, logic that runs on an edge on a mobile device today or on your own computer today can be offloaded to the cloud. And that gives you scale and that gives you agility for development. So 5G is a real game changer in this sense. So Binaris at this point has much lower invocation latency than uh, Lambda, right? Right. Lambda latencies, if, you, if you're thinking about large distributed system, you want to think about latency in terms of percentiles because your sort of casual user is going to, chances are they're going to experience your 50 percentile or your median latency, but your, your users, your kind of more active users, they're going to see many more requests and naturally you're going to see the 95 percentile or 99 percentile latency. And today with serverless platforms, we're looking at 50 to 60 millisecond P99 latency for warm invocations. That's when they already have a container up and kind of provisioned ready for you. And it can be hundreds of milliseconds or even seconds if they need to provision a new container. With Binaris, we're sub 10 milliseconds on our P99 and no cold start. And thinking forward, as we're thinking about applications that are composed out of more and more functions, the function-to-function latency needs to go way, way down. So we're working on different algorithms and different mechanisms that are going to automatically do what we call smart placement, so that functions that invoke each other are automatically localized in the same server, and that's going to get us to uh, tens or hundreds of microseconds in terms of invocation times between functions. And if we circle back again to this Berkeley paper, 
one of the things that's mentioned is a challenge of communication between functions. And how do you handle that in an environment where functions are not localized and every piece of communication goes over the network? And that's a bandwidth challenge, but also a latency challenge. So by automatically localizing functions for the user, we're able to deliver an advantage that you still get the simplified programming model and we take care of performance, we take care of provisioning challenges under the hood for you. So that's kind of where we're going. So you, you lower the latency, so surely you can build me in even smaller units. Oh, absolutely. One of the big benefits of Lambda is that it charges you in 100 millisecond increments and not full seconds increments. Actually, when Lambda came out, Amazon was charging for VMs at the one hour increment, right. and today it's one minute. And with Lambda, it's 100 milliseconds. 100 milliseconds doesn't sound like a lot, but if you're thinking about a responsive real-time app, compute time can be as short as a few milliseconds. So if you're running something like an, even an ETL job, you have to micro-batch. You have to put multiple data points together to use this 100 millisecond slot. Otherwise, you're paying for CPU that you're not using because you have this kind of internal fragmentation. Your function doesn't consume the entire 100 milliseconds. So if you have a code that runs for for seconds or minutes, you don't care. But if your code is really responsive and reactive, you really want to pay by one millisecond units, which is what we charge you at. Also, if you think about IO-bound workloads, any web app, um, any mobile app that basically serves an API, you usually get a request, you do some processing, you go out to a database, you get a piece of data, you do some more processing, and you send a response back to the user. If you're charged by 100 millisecond units, you're paying for a lot of idle time for when your, your code is basically waiting for the database. And if you have any scale, you really don't want to do that. So we charge you by the one millisecond unit, and we don't charge you when you're waiting for I.O. or when you're waiting for other functions. You can chain functions together and not pay for it. So inference seems like it's going to happen for serverless. Training is a different matter because of the, some of the reasons we discussed, and including just basically even specialized hardware for some of these more complex models. Mm -hmm. There's actually one case for training that potentially is a great fit for serverless. If your model is not too large and your data is not too large, imagine if you're using scikit-learn to, to train a model and many models fit oh, yeah, into yeah. that category. Yeah, that, but that wanna, I agree. Yeah, yeah. But you want to train it with different parameters. Yeah, hyperparameter search, right? Exactly. Right. That's exactly a scale-out problem that, uh, that's a great fit for serverless. But uh, so the other... Uh, aspect of this is basically databases, you know, transactions, maybe, maybe that, not right now, at least, right? So uh, transaction processing may not be a good fit for serverless. Funny you should mention it, because one of the things that we're going to demonstrate in RedisConf in, uh, in early April is using a combination of uh, Redis as a key value store and a new feature in Redis 5 called Redis Streams which is basically a streaming engine for Redis, and how we can combine the, the two of them to uh, basically create a transaction engine. And we use that transaction engine to build a, a gaming engine on top of that. And then uh, I think the one we're building right now is a poker game. So there's a transactional nature to any card game or basically any turn-based game. When you're drawing, for example, a card from a deck, you want to make sure that the card goes only to one person and that only that one person can see that card. And you don't want two people to accidentally draw the same card or make the same play. So we're using a combination of Redis state and Redis streams to provide this kind of opportunistic locking for managing transactions in a stateless environment. So the code is completely stateless, and the state actually lies within the stream itself. 
or a combination of the stream and the database. All right. So this has been a great overview. So a great overview for people who are interested in data. It's time to start really looking into serverless for the many reasons that Avner just outlined. So Avner Braverman, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much, Ben. It was a great time. As a reminder, Avner Braverman is part of a strong lineup at Strata Data London coming up in late April, early May. You can follow Avner Braverman on Twitter at Avner Braverman. Thanks for joining us. If you like the show, please subscribe and rate us on iTunes or Stitcher or TuneIn.com or SoundCloud or Spotify and never miss an episode.